Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Rick shares his path from a complete non-target school in the Midwest to breaking into a top MSF in Europe. Learn what he did that allowed him to break into a bulk bracket bank in London before his master's in finance, and why he turned down offers from a private equity mega fund. What he did when bridges were burned with some recruiters, and how he ended up at a long short hedge fund. Enjoy. <laughs> Rick, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could just uh, give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, for sure. So I'm originally from Germany, but went to a non-target in the U.S. Um, graduated um, back in 2010, then went for a massive science program in continental Europe, where I basically went through the traditional program of applying for internships. Went for some analyst position at, uh, you know, bank like JPM, GS, MS, and then moved from there to a long short equity hedge fund in um, continental Europe and have been on the buy side ever since. So you've been on the buy side. So you went, you know, banking to buy side, which is pretty traditional. But what was interesting is you started out in the U.S. So tell me a little bit, why were you in the U.S. at a non-target randomly? Um, you're, you said you're from Germany? That's correct. I'm from Germany. So when did um, so you basically, move to the States and why, why go to a school there? No, it's actually very interesting because um, in essence, I got an athletic scholarship for, um, uh, for basketball. And that's, that's how I basically went to a total non-target in the U.S. with no idea about finance and no idea about investment banking or markets for that matter, to be fair. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, just kind of learned about all this um, Wall Street and, actually through Wall Street Oasis at the time, funnily enough. Um, and that's how, how I basically went about. But that's why I ended up at a non-target in the Midwest, you know, that no one ever heard about. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they gave you a full ride scholarship to play basketball there? That's correct, yeah. And so you, you played basketball there. When did you, when during your undergrad were you like, hey, uh-oh, I'm at a non-target. I need to like rebrand. When did you, were you on Wall Street Oasis back then? And then you're like, I need to go get a master's now. Is that what the thought process was? Or when did, was it like your junior, senior year? When did you kind of discover this whole world and think, hey, this is, might be something I want to do? So I discovered finance in my freshman year mm-hmm. through one of my professors um, who used to actually work on Wall Street and kind of treated, I guess, teaching as a retirement job or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, then I went on a Wall Street Oasis Without an account, to be fair, I just read everything I could. I think back then, actually, um, Wall Street was fairly fresh on the scene as well, if I'm not mistaken here. Yeah, we'd started um, in 06, so you were in early days. 
very early days then, yeah. But uh, discussions back then were already very, very um, helpful, actually. Um, was it? Was it? Uh, was it still the monkey hanging with the banana with yeah. her logo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good times. Um, yeah, and then basically I, I read through everything. And um, back then, to be fair, um, even though I was in the states, right, my plan was to go back to Europe at some point. And I did not have a clue about finance or M and A or anything, you know, for that matter, from uh, or about Europe, because back then conversations and discussions on on Wall Street were very much U.S. centric. Mm. So whatever advice you got was very applicable to target schools or people that you know could actually get a job in New York, but was not very applicable to myself. So basically, I, I boiled it down for myself and said, "Hey, look, um, the only way I'm going to get." anything in Europe is if I go back and actually get into a target school because even though the process is a bit different it's still the same principles you apply in the states so how did you even convince this this target school to accept you for a master's in finance coming from where you came from no it was it was a it was a combination of of uh, very strong motivational letters um good recommendation letters high gmat score mm-hmm. um people think that gmats don't really matter in my opinion they really don't but if you have a high GMAT, it makes things a lot easier for you if you apply for schools, no matter where. Okay, um, fair. So you, so you get in, you're, you know, you're at this Master of Science program in continental Europe, we'll just say, and you're it's one of the top schools there. And you are start applying immediately for investment banking. Is that what you want, knew what you wanted to do? Actually, um, let's take a step back because what I did was actually something that I actually learned in Wall Street is what I did was once I was basically done with my, with my bachelor's degree, I actually started coming up with a process to network in Europe. So what I started doing was writing all these cold emails and reaching out to God and the world, trying to find him or someone who wants to talk to, you know, this nobody from the Midwest and the US that they never heard about to kind of get some kind of info or, you know, just a leg up on, on getting an internship somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I did that for a very long time and actually built an extensive network. Um, I used to tra- use Excel to track everything that I did from calls, emails, network, everything. How many people do you think you were reaching out to back then? Was, were you using LinkedIn back then? Um, I was using, I, I used everything. I used Facebook, LinkedIn. I used <laughs> a, a platform called The Small World, which was kind of a social community. Um, I literally networked everywhere. Um, but LinkedIn probably was my, my, let's call it bread and butter. Um, and if I can remember correctly, I was for sure in four digits. So basically two to two and a half K of emails that I send out over probably four to six months. So you I was literally doing nothing else for almost four months. So this is after you graduated? Undergrad? No, this was basically my last semester. Um, last semester so. My last semester, I only took very easy classes. So for me, I know I had a lot of time on my hands. So. So you were completely focused on, okay, I need to get to Europe, so I need to meet with people. So were you doing a lot of international phone calls? <laughs> I was, yeah, a lot of international phone calls. And then I got back home, um, and over the summer, I networked even more. And obviously, parallel to that, I had started applying to um, various Master of Science programs throughout Europe. Um, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this knows the program. So um, I was lucky because when I got into the school that I got into, which is one of the top two feeder programs into London, um, I had networked with so many alumni of that school that basically I knew all of them already. So I just basically, you know, could follow up and say, hey, look, you know, I'm now at the same school that you went to. When I'm, when next time I'm in London, let's, let's grab a coffee. Let's go for lunch. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then from there, it was actually quite almost a snowball because 
Um, everyone so that how many how many how many people out of that two thousand five you you so just to repeat that for listeners you reached out to two thousand five hundred people cold emailing over a period yep. of six months. Yep. So you were motivated. I was very motivated. That's awesome. And so you once you got into this master in finance program, were you also studying for the GMAT at the same time, or was that once that you was, moved home? No, I basically did that in my in my second to last semester. So wow. basically, I knew I had one year, and I wanted to. I knew where I wanted to get. So I took the first semester of that last school year to focus on the GMAT, and the second semester, once I had my scores and my applications in line, to basically focus on networking. That's awesome. And um, yeah, that's 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 really how I did it. And, I love uh, I love it already. This is you're like a you're a machine going after this. So you're you get you, you get. It took, like, it's a lot of work, right? You're work. You're doing like forty hours of networking a week, at least. It sounds like. That's, that's basically what it was for a very long period of time. Yeah. yeah. So you had kind of all these alum from the school you ended up going to, you'd already reached out, you'd already established connection. Then you could send them an update email and be like, great news. I got into XYZ school. I'm going to be at the same program you are. So did you feel like it was like you had already established a connection, then all of a sudden you have a stronger connection. Was it a big percentage of the people you had reached out to? So out of the 2,500, maybe only... 700 got back to connected with you or 300 i don't know three four hundred then maybe only a couple hundred talked to you on the phone and then is that is that accurate in terms of how it funneled down um it was yeah basically so um to be fair conversion rate on on cold emailing is very low Mm -hmm. um I've noticed that there's a clear difference between seniority of people. Of course, an MD is not going to get back to you as quickly as a junior. Mm-hmm. However, I have to say the DMDs and EDs or Ds, whatever, and banks that actually got back to me um, were the most helpful. Okay. Um, because either they had a similar background saying, you know, non-target or just because they understood what I was trying to do and were actually very impressed by the motivation that I displayed because I think not a lot of people do the whole networking thing and reach out to people and make and kind of make themselves known. Yep. Um, and then the ones obviously from my, from my university, my, from, from, from the university that I went to, um, were obviously very much, you, you added the personal touch, right? Because suddenly, you know, you're in the same program. They really like right. what you're doing. So was, they it, ask like, you about was what, it like 10, 10 people, would you say that you'd had established connection with? There was like a handful, like five or two. No, I think it was a bit more that I had a, got a connection with. So basically, let's say out of the ones that I really, that I actually talked to, that I met up with, I had probably a strong connection with maybe 10 to 12 and out of those 12, I would say probably six became actual friends or, you know, very close acquaintances. And out of those, I one for sure became a mentor for the first, let's say, five years of my career. That's awesome. And so um, once you're in this, in this program, this master in finance program, is it almost like a surefire thing that you're going to get an internship? Or sorry, is this, is this master in finance, is it a one-year program? So you're applying right away for full-time right when you start? No, that was a, I made a, I made the deliberate choice to go for a two-year program because I wanted to have the chance to um, have a summer program and then come back. Okay, so you had the internship, so you, but you knew pretty soon once you got on the campus, you knew you were going to be applying to internships. Correct, yeah. And so tell me how that process worked. Was the reason you got into a Bulge Bracket Bank, um, was it because you had these connections or was it just through um, the on-campus recruiting? I think it was, so basically, um, one of the things that I want to point out is you do not need to, you you really don't need to do a lot of networking to go through the traditional ways of applying and there's a, enough people um, that just get internships because of applications. Um, but for me, knowing back then that I was not 
the most uh, let's call it streamlined candidate um, the combination of networking and applying really made the difference because at some point for instance I mean the bank that I later joined um, for my summer program and then full-time afterwards um, basically I, I literally knew on, even on the floor that I, that I ended up working on um, I knew every guy that went to my university and out of those at least a handful or two handful pushed for me for the internship Great. So that kind of made the difference too. It was really that, that groundwork you put in before even applying that, no, you absolutely. Think, that you think helped you get the summer analyst position. And was it, was it really competitive um, at your master of finance program? So I don't know, let's say how many people were trying to get summer analyst positions at banks and how many people ended up with them? Top of my head, I don't know the numbers, but I know that um, like everyone rough, tried- rough numbers, like rough. I'll probably say that probably 20% actually got internships in London. Um, but from the whole class, you know, throughout continental Europe, everyone got something. Okay. Um, but not always necessarily what they were actually aiming for. But um, I think for that class, placement was fairly strong in, in London. Okay. So you get into a, um, a strong group at a bulge bracket. You're in during the summer analyst. Was the interview difficult coming out of this master in finance? Do, like, were you were you prepared for the technicals and all that stuff? Yeah, that, that's actually the, that's actually the funny thing about it because that's actually why I think that my networking helped so much. Because, I mean, I've I've, I've interviewed at you know a lot of places and I had more than one summer offer. And to be fair, the one <laughs> the one that actually accepted in the end. The interview was basically a day long. It was basically an assessment center and it was all focused on soft skills, how well you do in group conversations, you know, the technical side was not really talked about. And I was um, very, very, very prepared for technicals because I was thinking, you know, they're going to grill me so hard on everything, you know, like mental math and how to do a DCF or, you know, how does an LBO work or what does a sponsor look for and so on and so forth. Uh, or, you know, the, the typical accounting questions. And at the end of the day, nothing like that ever happened to me in any of these bulge bracket investment. Uh, so all that prep that you did was thrown out the window and you were forced to all of a sudden have these weird group conversations and interviews. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I thought, you know, like maybe I can, you know, maybe shine somehow you know, if, I, if I display my, at this point, you know, very um, <laughs> understanding of financial all metric, of a sudden you start walking statement through. analysis, you know, you but no one cared. <laughs> You start walking through a DCF suddenly uh, without out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought about how to do a DCF? Like, no, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> so your the the interview kind of wasn't technical. It was more of just more soft skills. Did you feel like you were prepared for that, or did you feel it was just natural for you, or or had you prepped for anything like that doing mock interviews? Um, I had not. No. Um, so. To be blunt, I thought I felt a bit like thrown to the deep end, um, and it was a bit unexpected because I fully expected to be grilled on you know very technical things. But at the end of the day, um, it just comes down to common sense, right? And I think that's really what they were trying to test or see and see how you do in group dynamics because I think that's that's you know the the attitude not these days in in, in banks is really we can teach you everything anyway in six to eight weeks, you know, so why would you bring all these technical skills with you? And so what do you um, think is the toughest part? Like in terms of how do you, how should you behave in those group, those group interviews? How do you behave in those kind of behavioral? Do you have any guidance? So I think, no, I think you should have, I mean, when it comes to behavioral questions, you know, you should think about them before you go in you should have good answers because you know, the, the ones that you read in, 
even no matter how good these manuals are, but whatever you read in, you know, the interview preps, it's, you know, they've heard it a million times and they don't find convincing if it's the same, you know, boilerplate or, or template that you give them, right? Um, but if you come up with something unique that is actually fitting to your persona, it works quite much better. And for the group discussions, you know, I mean, you need to be able to 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 actually discuss and, and think about or, or articulate your opinion in a certain manner that actually convinces people around you. And if you have trouble doing so, then I, I would advise that you practice that somehow. You know, I hear that a lot, but I think a lot of it's like how genuine you come across, right? So it's like, it's not, you're not just regurgitating some boilerplate boilerplate answer you're actually being genuine and not not BSing, right that's a very good point and one thing i want to add really quickly because i i had a friend who actually got killed by this in in one of those group things um people have a tendency when they sit in group meetings or group uh, discussions to let other people talk over them um and i've learned throughout my my years at, at that bank that um, this is an automatic ko criteria so one advice i would give people is don't let anyone talk over you in an interview um, when you sit in a group discussion, because it will not do you any good with people that are assessing you. Meaning somebody just jumps in and, and interrupts you. Yeah, exactly. You know, these are things, you know, that it, it, it kind of, I never really got why, because, you know, there's people that are just not as, you know, let's call it loud. Um, and some people will just, you know, take a step back. That's but that's not the, to me, I would think that if somebody interrupts you and you try to like interrupt back, I think it could look bad on both of you. No, entirely. I agree. But yeah, there's always ways you can play this in, 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 in a favor for you. You can also say, hey, you know, look, let me just finish my sentence, please. You know, you can express it. You can tell me your opinion afterwards. You know, and it's, it shows maturity to a certain degree and it shows that you can deal with pressure, right? But at the end of the day, you know, I, I, it's just one of the things because it happened to a friend, you know, and I thought it was very unfair. And it was one of those things where I thought, you know, like he was very good at what he was doing. He was very prepared and it literally killed his chances. So, How did he know that it killed his chances? Well, because he was, he was two years below me and that was the feedback we had in my group about his performance. So. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't think that would, that would knock you out. So you were, you were at this, uh, at this bank for a while. You did a lot of deals. Yep. Uh, tell me a little bit about what it was really like to be on the inside. Finally, you kind of reached your goal and you had reached the promised land and then you were working probably incredible or crazy hours. Right. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it starts off really good because they sent you to New York for training. And you have a great time in New York, you know, you live it up, you have, you know, you have a lot of fun. And then you come back and you, again, you're thrown to the deep end and suddenly you sit there, you know, you start at 8 a.m. and you don't get home until the next morning at 4 a.m. and you wonder why you're doing this, right? Um, my team was a very tough team. Um, we covered a lot of industries. We covered all products. Um, we did a lot of deals, a lot of big deals. Um, I think I, we had to ex at some point I had to keep an Excel of my working hours because they wanted to make sure that we are not overworked. Um, so I think my average was at some point in my second year was above hundred hours, which wow. was brutal. Um, so the that, was, that was, was the average was over hundred hours. Yeah, that was, that was the most brutal year I had. So my first year was okay. My second year was brutal and I left basically beginning of my third year. So, because you couldn't um, it anymore, basically, you're like, I'm out of here. No, nah, because I had offers, and and I and I always said, you know, I'm going to do this for two years, you know, learn whatever I can, you know, because I know how the game works, right? Uh, you do two to three years of banking, you get out, or you don't. Okay. Um, and now, it, tell me about the the process of when you were looking. I, I know you ended up at a hedge fund, right? That's correct. Yeah. So tell me about the process of um, 
recruiting for buy side or hedge funds out of um, the London office? It's very similar to the States, I have to say. So basically, you know, there's headhunting, headhunter firms that, that basically in your first, I mean, I got my first headhunter calls, I think the second day on, 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 on the desk. Yeah. Um, and, and literally the first call I got was, Hey, um, you know, you just started, I know, but have you ever thought about joining a hedge fund? Hedge fund? And I was like, I have never thought about this right now at this point. And, but maybe you sure, maybe what, what are you thinking? And then yeah. you meet for coffees with headhunters. You, you know, you, um, you basically are put in a file. I think you kept in a loop, you know, and you kind of, I mean, my first, and my first year, I think I also did to be entirely transparent here. In my first year, I did three processes for private equity firms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mega cap. They're basically just like the US. They're the first ones to call you. Then you go in six months in, you have your interview, you have an offer for your second year, basically, right? Did you get an offer um, or you, you, did you strike out on those? Uh, I got an offer from one mega fund and one mid-market fund. Um, so both, one is American, one is European. Uh, but they both want me to relocate to Munich. Um, and I did not want to move to Munich. Tell me why. Uh, because I just got to London and I didn't want to leave after, you know, a year again. Plus, um, I felt that, you know, we d- I did a lot of sponsor deals in my first year. I mean, relatively speaking, right? It's not like we closed 25 deals, but yeah, I worked on, you know, a number of, of RFPs and a number of live transactions that sometimes never went anywhere too close, you know, and it was always buy side stuff. And to be fair, I didn't get the feeling that the people on the other side were doing much better than I was um, in terms of hours, in terms of lifestyle. Got so it. I felt that private equity felt a bit more like continuation of investment banking. Yeah, banking um, 2.0. Banking 2.0 is what they call it sometimes at the megaphone. Yeah, 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 totally. Exactly. I fully agree. And um, and then I kind of, again, that also came through my through my connections from my university. I, I spoke to the guy that I mentioned earlier that became a mentor. And he was a partner at a, at a hedge fund. You know, and I said, hey, um, you know, I'm looking at what to do next. You know, I, I always enjoyed markets. I, I've been buying stocks since I was 15. Mm-hmm. You know, is that something I can do um, for a living, right? And he explained to me basically the things he was doing. And um, I thought it was more interesting to keep an eye on uh, the markets and the world economy than, you know, work in, in various processes or work streams. And that was it. So you kind of had your... It was interesting. You went through the process of the, the megaphone in the middle market, and it was really early in your in your banking days. You turned them down, even though you had offers. Yep. And did that make you? Which, nervous? sorry, sir, if I'm interrupt, that did not boil well with them, by the way. <laughs> the bank. I, I remember the, uh, getting fun. late night phone calls from one of the partners at the U.S. fund, and he was really pissed. Wow. Why, anyway. do, why do you think they're so upset? I mean, they have so many sharp people, right? I have no idea, but he was really upset. Uh, maybe he pushed for me very hard or whatever. I have no idea, but it was, he was really upset. Mm. I bet the recruiters weren't too happy with you either. Nope. That friend that got me those interviews, I never talked to again. <laughs> so you had enough confidence to turn these down. Why do you think you had that confidence? I mean, you feel like, okay, I'm at a, I'm at a good place and you felt like the mentor gave you that confidence maybe? Um, yes. So basically, um, one on one hand, obviously my, my mentor, to be fair. Um, and on the other hand, um, you know, if so, I, I always say if something doesn't feel right, just don't do it. Um, I mean, people do not turn down those offers. That's super rare. It is. It is very rare. Like that's, um, that's probably why the guy was going crazy on you. Like, are you stupid? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, that, those were exactly, almost exactly his words. It was kind of like, you know, um, he used a very nasty word, you know, but I'm not going to repeat it here, but um 
It's okay. We can mark the episode as explicit if you want to repeat. <laughs> no, I think he called me retarded. He called me retarded and he put a lot of F words in there and a lot of F bombs. It was, it was a, a very weird phone call to get at 10 p.m. But um, look, at the end of the day, it didn't feel right to me. I didn't want to do it. Um, I kind of had another friend who was a similar fund doing his summer program. He was in an MBA program at the time, but he was doing a summer uh, internship, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we compared notes and he basically just validated my thesis. So I said, look, you know, that's not for me. And so how did you go into your, you know, and then the, the reward for, for not accepting those offers is you go into your second year and you start working hundred hour weeks. So were you ever thinking in your second year, like, what am I doing? I should have already had an offer lined up or did you, did you more than once <laughs> or more did you than once I could, I literally, I sat there at, at my desk sometimes at four in the morning or three about to kick myself in the ass and say, Hey, look, you know, you're the literally the most retired person for turning down those offers because at the end of the day, you should have taken those, ran with it, and see where it takes you. Um, but then kind of, you know, the first, that's maybe three months in my second year were really bad. Um, then it kind of, you know, not it didn't get better work-wise, but suddenly, you know, recruiting in the hedge fund space picked up, and, and I, got a, I got, you know, a number of interesting interview opportunities. And so um, the, the, these are from recruiters you hadn't burned bridges with, obviously. Basically, yeah. And they... Um, did you tell them? Did you tell them that you had turned down private equity offers because you're really interested? Um, I did, yeah. Yeah, that probably made you more attractive. Which was, which is not very helpful. Um, full disclosure, because when they hear that you've, you know, basically turned down an offer before, where uh, someone else in their same position invested a lot of work, then suddenly, you know, you become a liability or you become high risk, right? I don't know if you say if you say like it's because I really want this hedge fund, then you you become a liability in the sense of like you're not afraid to turn down an offer, but you also show that you know what you want, so you may be a higher like to close, like if you tell them, like, if I get this offer, I'm in. You yep. And that's, that's the only reason why these people work with me because I said, look, I turned down because I didn't want to be on the private side anymore. Um, I'm not going to do the same if you get, if, if I am successful yep. in a hedge fund process. Okay. Um, so how did you prep for the hedge fund process? You had a long, short pitch with a couple on each yep. side. Yeah, basically. So again, I um, went and I spoke to um, you know, I spoke to my mentor. He was kind enough to introduce me to, you know, a couple of people that were on. So basically I wanted to, I wanted to join a long short equity fund. Mm -hmm. um, so basically I said, Hey man, do you know anyone in long short equity space? Um, he introduced me to, um, I believe three guys, two or three guys. Um, one was long only, so it doesn't really count. Um, but he had been at a long short fund as well. So he had good intel on the, on the process. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, what do I need? And they all said the same thing, you know, like have pitches ready, have a long idea, have a short idea, preferably two. Um, and then you um, go in and you can show them that you know what you're doing because that's what they're looking for. You know, it's not like banking where they look for, does he tick the boxes or whatever. It's like, can this guy actually make money for the firm? Um, and I mean, and that's, how, you that's up, how did you even come up with those ideas? It sounds like you really loved public markets. You've been trading since a young age. So was it just stuff you had actually been trading or did you do research outside of what you're doing for your personal portfolio? So in essence, I, um, for the, so the long ideas weren't that difficult because, um, you know, it's, it's, I always say it's easier to find good long ideas because, you know, at the time also the market was going up anyway. So you could have pitched anything that was a growth stock or whatever, you know, would have, you would have made money, right? Yeah. Um, I was having some difficulties in the beginning with the shorts um, and screening for shorts was also an issue mm -hmm. um, on top of, you know, doing it while working long hours in, in the bank, right? Um, so I, admittedly for the first couple of pitches, I got some help from the guys that I was talking to, 
um, more as a sounding board though. So basically I would pitch an idea and they would say, hey, look, man, this is just not gonna fly. Or, you know, that was actually the initial feedback for two or three pitches. Or they would say, look, man, like it's- In an interview process or this was with like mock interviews with friends? This was in mock interviews, yeah. Smart. Okay, so you're, um, and then, you're you know, testing these out to see if they would actually fly. <laughs> exactly. And then, I mean, and some pitches, you know, were like, hey, this is the right idea, but the work you're putting in, if you want to convince someone to actually give you a job, it's just not granular enough, hmm. which is decent feedback because, you know, when you sit somewhere and you do something, you always think it's very good or it's, it's great. But at the end of the day, when someone else looks and says, hey, look, there's so many flaws in this, you should really sit down again. You're going into the right direction, but you need to do more work around this look at this risk factor in more detail, have an answer for this question, you know? And then, um, yeah, and then I just took it from there. And then I came up with uh, some really good pitches. I got a hang of it, how to generate ideas because of that, to be fair, which I still use to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went in for, I think, maybe four funds that interviewed me. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to the office stage with, with two. Great. Um, and then basically, I last minute got an intro to someone else, and um, they ran ran an accelerated process for me, and I accepted the offer from that fund. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about um, the work you did at that fund. It was long short equity, right? Yep. And did you feel like there? So knowing kind of what the hedge fund space has been through over the last several years, it's been kind of a rocky few years. Yep. Did you did you kind of have your eyes wide open seeing that already unfolding before you went into this fund, or was it something that like you started and things started kind of crumbling? I don't know if you, I don't even know if this fund that you were at did really well or what the what the whole pattern was. If there were a lot of redemptions, but can you talk to me a, bit, a little bit about like what you saw going in and how the whole industry kind of evolved while you were there for a couple of years? No, for sure. So basically, I mean. Um, the fund that I worked for was focused solely on continental European equities. Um, and at the same time, one of the major shifts, um, within Europe at the time was, I would say a greater focus on shareholder activism. So when, when I actually joined, um, and I joined halfway through uh, a year, um, the long short was not performing well at all. Um, they were, we were down, I think two or 3%, um, which is not a killer obviously, but it's not great either. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time we launched a dedicated activist uh, product. Okay. So I was lucky enough that I was, um, one of two analysts in that firm focused on, on long short. Um, but the only analyst focused on shareholder activism. Tell me what is for the, for the listeners that don't know what shareholder activism means. Tell me like, can you give me a quick summary of what that means? Like what? What is a hedge fund trying to do when they're so basically so basically when you when you are an active shareholder you take a, a stake in a company be it usually you go for a significant stake or at least so that you appear in a shareholder register if you don't have as much money mm-hmm. um, and then you literally push um, for change in the company because you believe that there's a value to be unlocked so, um, I, I I tend to call shareholder act- so can you give me Sorry. An, can you give me an example like so you would go and buy up ten percent of the shares outstanding yep. and then kind for of instance. demand a board seat or like what would you do like say hey we need to fire the ceo this he's terrible like what would you <laughs> well, and, and oh, yeah, i mean and, and so throughout my throughout my time there we did three campaigns so basically we, we covered all that it's called you know basic uh, uh campaigns that a shareholder uh, can run but the first one was probably the best one because we basically went in we bought 10 percent of the company 
Um, we placed three people on the board, we fired the CEO, we went for cost cutting, and then we made the company sell itself to a conglomerate. Mm. So that's basically literally tick all the boxes of a shareholder campaign. In so the second campaign, it was a bit different. Unlock, were you able to unlock a lot of value with that, with that trade? Uh, totally, yeah, I mean, we, we, bought, we bought shares, and don't quote me on this, um, let's call it in the 15s, 16s, yep. and the company was taken over from 90. Wow, so, and how long did that take, two years? Uh, yeah, it was a two-year campaign. Yeah, that's great. It's a great return. Absolutely. Okay. And then, uh, sorry, go ahead. You were going to give me another example. And then uh, a second campaign that we did was basically um, we bought about 4.5% of the company. Um, was much larger than the first target. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that case was solely based on cost-cutting. So we published numerous plans about um, how to, co- uh, how to um, cut costs and how to streamline and increase efficiency. Um, and to be fair, the company never did any of this. Share price still doubled and we got out with a nice little profit. So they never did anything of it, but do you feel like the publishing of those reports and the promotion of those reports um, puts pressure on the company? No, yeah, exactly. That's the beauty about public markets, right? Sometimes fantasy just propels share prices up, you know, even if nothing ever happens. So you, they didn't actually implement any of the cost cutting or the streamlining that you said, but you, you kind of outlined pat, the path to, to greater profitability or better margins for this company. Yep. And that yep. was, you think that played a role in it, the share price going up so high, or do you feel like it was just, it was part of a bull market and you guys were- No, it was, there was, so the, the stock had underperformed, um, outperformed everything. And once we came on the scene, you can actually put, every time we put something out, the share price went up. Um, I think it was a combination of, you know, like the fantasy of, or maybe they'll do it. And number two, we believe if they don't do it, they'll, they'll make them do it by, you know, going to the AGM or replacing someone like they did last time. So fantasy becomes reality. Exactly. People, people want to buy before that happens and before it's announced. Exactly. Okay. So, um, really interesting. So is, is this shareholder activism, is it, do you feel like this is fairly common in hedge funds? Are there funds? There are certain funds that are just dedicated just to just that, right? No, yeah, totally. I mean, there's dedicated uh, activist funds. Um, Usually they're long only. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some that have a long short portfolio and they do activism um, opportunistically, but try to hedge it via the short book. Ackman against Herbalife or whatever? Yeah, kind of like (laughs) that. But that was a. I mean, that was a that was a short seller campaign, right? I mean, if I'm if I remember correctly, he was betting that it'll go to zero and he got burned on it heavily. Yeah, I think initially it dropped, and then uh, then Icon came out and said it's he's full of it. This company's fine; it's growing fast. And then yeah, exactly, rocketed exactly. it back up, and it was just back and forth. But um, people, but that's obviously a derivative of of a, of, a, of an activist campaign, right? I mean, if if Agman goes somewhere and, and presents a short case, and I think they even made a Netflix documentary about it, you know? Yeah, that's that's a form of activism. But every in Europe, for the time being, at least. Um, there's some share uh, short selling activism, but not a lot. But there's a significant increase in um, shareholder activism where people try to unlock value um, either by reducing complexity or by replacing people and so on and so forth. Do you think that's more common now that long short equity is under pressure? I think that's that's one of the reasons, yeah. Because in essence, you know, the question is always, and it's a valid question, right? Because since '09, we've been in a bull market, right? It's it's the longest bull market, if I, if I if I'm not mistaken, for uh, ever in the history. 
So basically, you have you know hedge funds charging two and twenty, right? People say, hey, look, you know, you're not outperforming your index. Why should I give you two and twenty, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have an activist program, you always say, hey, look, you know, because we buy shares in companies, we actually work for our money by implementing strategic changes, or and you can see the work we're doing because there's you know press releases, so on and so forth. Right. And I think that's a valid point to be made, you know. Very cool. So you're there. You're you're. It sounds like you're enjoying your time. You have a couple of really good trades. Um, yep. And you leave, or what happens? This fund shuts down. What's what's the? Why did you leave? No. So in essence, um, the person who who was the founder of the company at some point decided, hey, you know, I'm gonna basically shut it down after um, almost 20 years. Um, So basically, you know, there was nothing to be done anymore. Um, Was there because a lot of redemptions, and it was just because it was a rough patch, or do you feel like it was because he was just wanting to retire? No, he he just wanted out. He made he made enough money, you know. He wanted out. He uh, wanted to basically go for the second spring, so to speak, you know, new wife, blah blah blah. Anyway, and um, yeah, and then uh, and then um, yeah, one one thing led to another, and and one another partner of that firm and I got together and said, hey, look, let's start our uh, let's start our own, and we took some investors from from that fund. And, Seeded or seeded a new fund, and we basically managing it in the same fashion that um, you know the old fund was managed, and uh, we try to do the same things. Okay, so you've been you've been doing that now for the last couple of years, uh, roughly, yeah. Roughly. Okay, and then I guess just in terms of that whole process of like spinning out, can you talk to me a little bit about like what somebody would do to position themselves well for like creating a new fund like that? I assume there was a ton of work to do. I mean, you had the LP or you had the relationships with the investors, right? So that exactly. as much work, but just in terms of just getting the whole fund structure up, were you one of two people that were founding that, that new hedge fund? Yep. Yep. So was um, a lot of work on your plate, just some, just logistical stuff. Um, funnily enough, not really because, um, in essence, the structure we have is a very common, um, well, you know, one, one thing that basically I always say, you know, uh, if you start a hedge fund and you actually do have either seed capital or you have, you know, family and friends that actually believe in you, mm-hmm. um, you know, you basically, you need, let's say, I mean, in Europe at least, okay, I can't speak for the U S because I know in the U S you need a lot more AUM because of regulatory um, yeah. costs and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But in Europe, if you, let's call it play it a bit smart and for the first couple of years, keep yourself under the radar and don't manage too many assets because at some point you pass, you cross a threshold where you actually do have significant regulatory costs. Mm-hmm. Um, you basically, you invest 150 K and you have the chance to become, you know, a multimillionaire. It's and almost so, like a call option. And so the, the fund was relatively small. Like. Initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, is it something where you saw yourself doing this or you see yourself still doing this, staying in the hedge fund space? Or is it something where you're, you're thinking, you know, I've had my taste of the public markets. I mean, what's your thought now with like the whole, you know, do you feel like, you want to focus more on the activism stuff. You feel like that's still a place to unlock a lot of value. No, to be fair, I think, um, I mean, first question to answer that uh, totally. Yes. I mean, if you, if you really do love public markets and if you see yourself doing this, then you stick with it. Um, and that's just what you do. Even, I mean, even the old guys, you know, old, not being disrespectful, but even the older guys that I know have been doing this for 30 years, you know, <laughs> even, you know, even those guys, you know, they, even if they stop running a fund, right, they still sit at home in front of a computer and sometimes trade or have a portfolio of their own money, right? Right. So if you do actually love this, you don't you don't stop doing it. And why would you? Because there's not a lot of things in the world where you can make. Um, and I don't want to sound like you know a very 
like a douchebag, but there's not a lot of things in the world where you can make a lot of money like this, just trading stocks no. or trading anything, right? So, so I guess, um, speaking of money, do you mind going through kind of the comp or rough ranges of what you had when you were at the bulge bracket bank and then kind of how that, how that changed when you went hedge fund, when you went buy side? No, for sure. So, um, and take these with a grain of salt because I mean, again, first of all, um, so I'm going to try to, I'm not going to try to put this in dollar terms because I don't know the exchange rates, but anyway, mm-hmm. for, so basically in pound for my first two years i think i got 50 and 55 consecutively mm-hmm. and then it up to 60 in my third year and bonuses so i always had a had a very strong ranking so i guess top bucket bonus i would assume but i think my first year my bonus was 50 second year was 54 and my last year I did not have a bonus because i left and so that's um, that's pounds or euros pounds yeah GDP. So, yeah. But I heard that the bonus in, in the third year was basically almost, you know, for Top Bucket also almost 100% plus the associate sign-on, which I never obviously got. But um, And so then... Yeah, when you're, once you jumped? To the once bank. I jumped and not give, you the, give it to you in dollar terms because I um, yeah. basically know. Um, so basically my first year, I total comp for... In, I mean, it, for the long short, it was a shitty year. For the actives and fund, it was a great year. So it kind of balanced out. So my first year, I got 300K total comp all in. Mm-hmm. Second year was closer to 400. And then in my third year, we left halfway through. So I just got to basically stop, right? Stop, yeah. And was that- So that was not re- representative. Was the- Plus, and, and one caveat, because I mean, I, I, was, a, I was basically a, a minority equity partner in the business after my second year, right? So there was some kind of economics that flew back that, that basically had some cash streaming to me, but that was because I owned co- uh, shares in the, in the management company. Got it. And that, so you were getting management fees. Exactly. Yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about um, specifically the, the balance between base and bonus there though at the, at the hedge fund? So was it, was it skewed more? Was it like, I don't know, you, you can tell me like, was it, much higher bonus or was it pretty even like banking? No, it was, it was much higher bonus, but just because, um, so basically the way that, that, um, the guy ran his firm was basically, um, he obviously had a portfolio, um, mm-hmm. but every analyst had his own PNL. Oh, okay. So basically if you made money, then, you know, you got a higher bonus. If you lost money, then your average, your bonus was not as great. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So in essence for me, my, my, um, my performance part, um, was significantly higher than the base. Because of those activist trades you did? And because of the long short stuff that I did, yeah. So it was a combination. Okay. That's well, kind of nice. Cause you I mean, if I, if, I give you, if I give you the percentage, so basically, um, if you probably one and a half times base or even 1.8 times base, um, and then obviously the shares on top. So that was the addition on top. Great. So anything else before we call it? Any kind of advice you'd give to the younger listeners? that are uh, playing basketball in the middle of nowhere at a non-target. How do they follow in your footsteps? How to, how to go besides sending 2,500 emails, I guess that's, that's, they could start there. I mean, it's, it's the same advice that anyone probably will give you. If you are literally in the middle of nowhere, you really need to network a lot. You need to make sure that you get your name on some, somehow on the radar um, and try to make, I call them ninja moves, make ninja moves so that you basically, you know, you, you, you get, you stay under the radar, but you're still somewhere close to the people that can make decisions for you. Right. Um, just network, beef up your CV. Don't be ashamed to actually take the first internship for free. It sounds stupid, but that's just the reality we're in. 
Um, and then everything else will fall into place. And I mean, there's this, again, there's ninja moves, right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard about search funds. Um, there's a lot of search funds that pop up, you know, left and right. Um, if you play a cards right, you can do an unpaid internship there, which is basically nothing less than a PE internship these days because these guys are so streamlined. It's, it's almost like working for a fund. Interesting. And maybe a bit more startup-y, but it's still deal sourcing, LBO modeling, so on and so forth. That may be a ninja move, right? Um, so. <laughs> Any other ninja moves you have up your sleeve? Um, I mean, it sounds like you weren't doing too much ninja moves. You're doing more brute force moves when you when you started. Yeah, but you you know how it is. Once you get older, you get wiser. <laughs> um, another thing that that I really enjoy and that that I kind of did back then as well. You know, you can always come up with investment ideas, and there's enough platforms out there these days where you can pitch these, right? You can always upload them. You can pitch. You can get feedback on them, right? Mm-hmm. It's never too early to start trading your own account if you want to be in a public market fund because people will ask you about your track record. And if, if anything you ever bought was Facebook, then good luck. Um, Facebook's IPO at thirty-eight dollars. And then well, then I mean, okay, fair enough. You know, you you, you no, probably it, don't need to. And then it tanked. No, and then it tanked. To, 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 <laughs> um, you know, and it's just some. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of of reading a lot of books, but if if you really and then, and you know this as well because. I mean, you can read all the books in the world, but when it comes down to it, you know, there's maybe five books that really can help you. And um, for anyone out there, you know, another point that I will make, there's a book called Financial Shenanigans. Maybe get it, read it, understand it, and you'll be much better positioned for interviews than most of your peers. Great. Great. And I think that's, that's literally everything I can, awesome. I can advise someone to do. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to hard work and how much you want it. Agreed. Let's end it there. Rick, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.